Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandsbury. Welcome, Simon. Another Sunday evening and after our our ramblings last week over all the complex national issues and uh, the fun that was going on, our focus this week is much more local. Indeed. So, yes, this week we welcome back, um, well, not well, it's not kind of quite newly minted, but it is quite a recent development. But um, we w- welcome back to the show. Uh, a um, multiple time uh, guest is uh, Councillor Cal Corkery, who is now the uh, leader of the Labour Group on Portsmouth City Council. So a completely different thing. So it's not just our voices. We've got someone that actually knows what they're talking about. Welcome, Cal. So welcome. Thank you both very much. Glad to join you. So I guess first, we'd better offer you congratulations on being um, elected as the uh, as the leader of the local Labour group. Is that a is that a, a an honour bestowed upon you by your peers in the uh, Labour Council group? It has been. Yep, uh, I'm enjoying it so far. There's a few extra meetings for the diary, which is always good. Splendid. Well, let, let's start then by looking back at those those May elections. And, um, you know, Labour increased the number of councillors to nine. Um, they won a seat in the in the north of the city in Cosham. So reflecting on the, the May elections, you know, how would you describe them? I think we were very happy with the outcome. It was something we'd been aiming for. Clearly, we identify early on in the campaign particular areas where we're going to um, focus our resources and areas where we think we're in a good chance of winning those seats. Um, so we had a strategy from early on that I and others were involved in drawing up. And then over the course of the, the long campaign, we rolled that strategy out and it's proven to have been fairly effective, um, which is, is clearly um, something that we welcome. It's quite hard to tell when you're in the midst of the campaign and the kind of um, down in the trenches as it is. It's sometimes hard to know exactly how it's going to go. And I think there were certainly a number of wards going into polling day, and uh, even going into the count where us and the other parties that were involved were probably none the wiser really about how it was going to turn out. So it did make for a fairly tense um, and interesting count. But yeah, we were happy to come away with the result that we did, winning five wards across the city. In fact, the best... Um, the best result for Portsmouth Labour since 1998. So for quite some time, um, we won the popular vote across the city as well, which we haven't done for, for a little while. So it was a good result for us. I think there were there were a couple of wards where we only fell very short. I mean, Milton is the obvious one where it was less than 40 votes in it. Um, mm. We were we were very keen to to try and get Paula elected in Milton because I think she'd be a very good councillor. It was clearly a very tight race between her and Steve Pitt there and Steve eventually getting over the line but we did get a a couple of other new councillors added to the group as well as re-electing and the three Labour councillors who have for election and we're very glad to welcome Ashgar Shah and Kosham and Ginka Adenarin to the group. I think they've made really great starts already um, and looking forward to to working with them over the coming year. Yeah I think probably again if we if we look at those results Kosham looks like the big gain for Labour. Obviously, mo- most of your 
effort, activities and success seem to be based in the south of the city. How how important do you feel it is to, to have that foothold now in the north? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've always been keen over the years within our internal party organisation to ensure that we are campaigning across the city, across both constituencies and across all 14 wards around the city. Um, we don't believe there should be any no-go areas for Labour. Clearly, in, in recent times, Portsmouth North has largely become a, a no-go area for, for Labour and other parties. Um, but this year, there's been, it seems, a bit of a, a sea change. Um, and we were, yeah, we were delighted that Shah got over the line. I think that was one which wasn't so much of a surprise to me, to be honest, on polling day. It was, may have been a surprise mm. to other parties. But having been out in Cosham in the weeks leading up to polling day with Shah, it was it was clear he was very well known. I think I've never I've honestly never come across um, a local election candidate, even people up for re-election, who have got such good name recognition on the doorstep. Um, yeah, it, a lot of the people I was knocking on the door said, "Charles already been round, or we know Charles because he does this." Um, so we were really glad that he, he got the result that he deserved and joins us on the council. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I can't say I was surprised by. I was hopeful for, for Shah's result, but um, can't say I was surprised, although Ian felt differently. Um, um, I, I think, I think, uh, you know, again, if I look at it, I was uh, I was surprised by the result because I was surprised that um, that the Conservatives could lose Cosham. But I think uh, anyone who knows Shah or knows of Shah knows that, um, you know, he's yeah. worked very hard for the community. Uh, um, and did an awful lot of work during the pandemic. So um, from that sort of personal perspective, um, I'm sure he'll do a very decent job as a, as my local councillor. Indeed. Indeed. So uh, so moving on to our to our next question. Um, so um, so Labour unsurprisingly chose to return the Lib Dem administration as as you'd um, as you'd previously promised, because there was no way in hell you were going to return the Conservatives. Um, but um, but the interesting thing was after the dust had settled of the actual election itself, you um, you and the Conservatives kind of seemed to both kind of divvy up the committee chairs, um, which seemed to be something that um, the Lib Dems weren't necessarily so happy about. But what was you, what were you thinking around that? Well, our thinking was that we wanted to secure as many chairships of the scrutiny panels and the statutory committees um, for, for Labour councillors as possible, because we see those as, as really important forums where we can put forward our policies and our principles. Uh, for example, I was I won an elected um, contest against uh, Joe Advantage Action for the chair of the Employment Committee. And I was keen to do that so that we can use that position to, to drive forward our campaigns, in particular the living wage, um, but also our wider remit to ensure that all workers within council services, whether those directly employed by the council or in outsourced or privatised services, enjoy decent terms and conditions and fair pay. Um, so there were a number of other positions that weren't won by Labour representatives. I think probably one of the most contentious was the licensing committee chairship. Um, so there were two candidates for that. One was the Conservative candidate, Scott Pater-Harris, who had previously been vice chair. Um, and the other was George Madgwick, um, the kind of so-called independent councillor, formerly of UKIP, who was being backed by the Lib Dems. Uh, and our decision within that particular election was to support Scott Pitt Harris on the basis that he had more experience for the role and we thought was a better fit. And um, there was also one other scrutiny panel position, which 
I think was the governance audit and scrutiny um, panel, which that the role of that panel in particular is to hold the administration to account. So our position there was that that shouldn't be chaired by a member of the administration or a member of the same party as the administration, because that probably wouldn't allow for the kind of the independence needed to effectively scrutinise um, the administration and the cabinet and the work that they're doing. Okay, so these these commit because in our in our system in in Portsmouth we have a you know we have a we have a cabinet system. So most of the the um the city's decisions are made um in in cabinet um or by the by the brief holder of that particular cabinet. And it's only if the council kind of call things back in to be uh, called in and considered by uh, by full council. So kind of what role do the do the committee? You know, you mentioned obviously about governance and standards and about um holding you know the way the the administration does its business to account. But what other function do they ha do the other committees have in that sort of setup? Is there is is there much of a power base there? What's the you know what's the what's the function of them in that respect? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the cabinet model that we have means that whoever is leader of the council, um, I would say, gets about ninety nine percent of the the policy and the budget making power because they have the remit then to appoint their cabinet members, um, and the cabinet make members hold most of that decision making power. Um, so clearly, we supported the Lib Dems to continue to run the cabinet, as you said, to, to keep the Tories out. And we were clear that that we would always do that. The scrutiny panels, I think, can play an important role in holding the administration to account. So last year, I was chair of the housing and social care scrutiny panel. And we led a review on local social housing repairs and maintenance services. And that was off the back of feedback um, that we'd got as a Labour group, as councillors, out in our wards, social housing tenants coming to us and, and raising quite serious concerns about the services they were receiving. So that's one way in which we can try and shine a light on what's happening and draw out some recommendations about how policy could be developed in the future. As well as the scrutiny panels, you've also got the statutory committees, so planning and licensing, which are run um, in a, a quasi-judicial manner, which basically means that they should be run kind of non-politically and decisions should be taken based on the merits um, of the case and, and the advice that's given by officers so they are yeah they are more apolitical bodies that are there to perform a quite important legal function okay thank you yeah and when when simon and i looked at this we we we, we thought it, it seemed you know again you, you talk about holding the administration to account it, it seemed to us that you know the, the the Lib Dems having claimed almost all of the prizes, I, I, I was very surprised that they were as upset as they were, that that both Labour and the Conservatives looked to construct a situation where they would be held to account. Were you surprised at just how much of a of a a pushback or as a that 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 you seem to get as a result of that? Not really. No, I think that's local politics, isn't it? I think no one is really surprised when. Gerald flies into a fit of furrow rage. I mean, I know he made comments about not being able to sleep at night because he hadn't got his picks for committee chairs, um, which we did think was a bit rich. I mean, as the leader of a local authority coming out of the back of the pandemic, facing serious cost of living crisis, as well as issues in social care, housing, education, if the one thing that is keeping the leader of the council up at night is the fact that he couldn't get his picks in for committee chairs, you have to ask the question about what the priorities are. Which is fair enough. So if we look at the, the, the election and how well it went for, for 
local labor how much of that do you attribute that do you attribute it as a as a positive move towards local labor or you know is more of a bearing the the disenfranchisement with conservatives nationally i think the mess that the conservative party here in nationally clearly played a role in these elections i mean across the city the conservative vote crashed and they lost a significant number of, of their councillors who were up or the wards that were which they held that were up um, in terms of our performance and where we're able to make gains i think it probably played a more limited role because i mean most of the wards where we were looking to either re-elect councillors or, or gain seats were lib dem labor marginals yeah. so they're the kind of conservative um, for I mean, in, in in some ways, arguably, that may have gone against Labour because disaffected Conservative voters are perhaps more likely to go live them than Labour in those wards. Um, clearly, in Cosham, which was the kind of the one major ward where it was a, a Labour Tory um, kind of marginal almost, I think it did play a role there. But uh, I'm pretty confident that Shah would have won whatever was happening nationally because, as I said, he was a, he was a very popular um an energetic local campaigner i think you were entitled to your half laugh in the middle of that sentence the uh, the, the disarray of the national conservatives i'm going to let that one go well other people might use different words but it's a family show absolutely yeah. i'm being polite you're probably more polite than i am at the moment okay so um so bearing in mind obviously the um the disarray that there is um kind of nationally uh, other other words are available are you kind of um, thinking forward to the next general election? Does that mean that you're better off with Boris still being in charge? Are you backing Boris to stay in charge? Because that makes for a better result for the for um, for Labour at the general, do you think? No, I, I don't want him in charge <laughs> okay. for one more minute, let alone one more day or one more week. I know there have been kind of arguments floated around that maybe it's in Labour's interest to to let Boris continue to destroy the Conservative Party and the country because it may be in our kind of long term electoral benefit. But I can't accept that argument when I'm going out in, in my community every day and seeing the, the impact that the failure of government is having on people. Obviously, people suffered massively over the pandemic. The cost of living crisis is now really starting to hit. Um, and we've got people really struggling. They need a government that is competent and standing up for them and actually delivering services that improve their lives. And all the time we've got Boris Johnson as prime minister, that's not going to happen. So I think he needs to go as soon as possible. That's not to say I've got any great faith in whoever the Conservative Party might line up to replace him. Um, but I can't see that they're going to be any worse. Well, that's that's a difficult bar to, to, um, to fall under, isn't it? Really, surely, to find worse. Who who would be who would um out of interest? Who would be your? Who would be the replacement that you would fear the most? I don't know if fear is the right word, but you would, you would find the most competent um and substantial competition. If you've got a if you've got an unfavourite, if you like. I mean, from my perspective, I'm not sure there is a, a massively strong contender. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why Boris is still in his place. If there was an obvious successor who was suddenly going to boost um, the Conservative poll ratings, then I think they would be in number 10 by now. But I think one of the problems they're struggling with is that, that they haven't got anyone lined up um, and they haven't got anyone that's kind of competent and willing to do the job. Yeah, I think that's one where, where I, th I think we can actually agree Cal, I think there there is a situation at the moment where, you know, the, the, 
there, there is no clear successor. Um, and ultimately, and, and I think until there is, um, well, the, the fact is that the 1922, our own internal processes almost played their Boris card too soon, or the Joker, if you will. Um, and now we've had the two by-elections. Um, I wonder whether it would be different if the card was played today, but the rules say he's got another 11 months before that can happen again. So, um, well, unless they change unless... the rules, of course. Wouldn't it just be ironic for the if the man who, for whom rules don't apply, um, the nineteen twenty two committee changed the rules to oust him? But um, we we can hope. Yeah, I mean, after all, what's the point in supporting a populist if he's no longer popular? But there we go. Well, yes, yes, indeed, yeah. indeed, right. So enough of Boris and national issues. Um, so if we if we come back to 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 local issues, you've you've been. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, Gal, you've you've been very vocal about the the, the living wage for all um, subcontracted services for PCC, and I think Asga's maiden speech spoke about insourcing the refuse collection when it comes up again next year. Now, both of those policies seem very noble, um, but but will almost certainly cost the council more. So, surely are we not at a situation that? Uh, to make those policies a reality, there are going to have to be cuts elsewhere. Well, I think for the Labour group, one of our, we've got a number of key priorities that we published um, during the election campaign in terms of our manifesto priorities. And we've um, kind of reiterated those coming out of the election to talk about what we will be focusing on over the coming year. And like you say, kind of the insourcing of council services back into kind of direct provision by the council and living wage accreditation are two of those top priorities that we will be really focusing on and trying to get implemented. With In terms of insourcing the waste collection contracts, that's a specific manifesto pledge that's been in our last two manifestos, so last year and this year. So it was really welcome to see last week a report finally being brought to Cabinet, which looks specifically at that issue. Um, and Cabinet, apparently the Lib Dem Cabinet, now agree with our policy and they're willing to implement it and although the kind of exact details of the pub of the report haven't been published I think due to kind of commercial confidentiality I think it's probably fair to say that the the outcome of that analysis has been that the council can provide those services on a on a on a fairly competitive basis and ensure that they are providing a decent quality service over which the council has direct control and influence while at the same time ensuring that workers within those services are paid properly and entitled to, to fair pensions, fair holiday pay and decent terms and conditions at work. But is, is that not always the double-edged sword though, Carl? Is that, you know, again, if, if to, to insource costs the people of Portsmouth more or other services have to be cut, is it seems a strange ideological choice to to make to say well yeah it's going to cost you more um the service may suffer because you know the the big waste companies that tender for these that is their that is their night and day business that's that's why they exist is it not taking a huge gamble to to insource that and potentially see a deterioration in service and an increase in cost I don't think there is any evidence that the council would it would cost the council a lot more to provide the service in-house. And actually, I would argue the exact opposite. 
where councils around the country over the last couple of years have started to in-source services again, ending um, a period where privatisation seemed to be dominant within local government. Those local authorities who have taken those steps are finding that it is often more cost efficient um, for them to provide the service themselves, as well as allowing for kind of greater flexibility and greater service quality. And I think what you have to remember is that when you're outsourcing services to the private sector, they're not providing um, a service out of the kind of goodness of their hearts. They're doing it to make profit. And they quite often do make very significant profits on public sector contracts. So I think when those public sector contracts are brought back in-house, we've got those profit margins to play with. So those profit margins can be used either as savings for local authorities or they can be used to, to reinvest back into the service and its staff rather than being distributed out to corporate shareholders. Yeah, and I think that that's that's the always the balance of the argument. When we when we look at the living wage, I think that's something you've brought to to full full council a couple of times. And I think every time you've been you've been pushed back with a with, with an an explanation, or you, you perhaps you could label it as an excuse that the the one off cost of doing that would would guarantee that there would have to be cuts in other services. How, how do you see a path through to being able to to deliver that that pledge without some other part of the council's budget having to be slashed to make it happen? Well, I think there probably will be an initial cost uplift to paying people fairly that are working in these outsourced services. Um, but the argument we would make is that's an investment. I mean, the, the vast bulk of this extra cost would go to frontline carers working in adult and children's social care yeah. services. Um, so the, the, t- the typical service where there's a lot of low paid people on less than the, the real living wage is home care. So people that are traveling out and about on, on council contracts, but employed by private companies on minimum wage, zero hours contracts, going around to visit elderly and vulnerable people in, the, in their homes um, and provide them with essential care and support. Now, our argument there would be is if you start paying people properly and give them decent terms and conditions at work, you're going to have much better services because I know countless people who are really passionate about working in social care, but have had to leave their job and leave their clients who they, who they care a massive amount about and have built long term relationships with because they can go and get two, three, four, five pounds an hour more working in a local supermarket or, or another local sector. Um, also important work but what we want to do is really encourage people to stay within the social care sector and show them that there is a long-term career path for them where they're going to be paid fairly they're going to have enough money to pay the bills and put food on their table as well as doing the job that they love so we believe there would be kind of long-term financial as well as social benefits to the council and to the city of paying people fairly that work in those services is there an argument for insourcing that as well? Definitely. And I think that's a point we've made. I think paying, ensuring that people who are in, working in contracted out services are paid at least a real living wage, for me, is the first step on the road towards insourcing. Because when we have discussions with the council's commissioners and we ask them what's the number one reason why this service can't be insourced, they say it's the wage differential. Because if it was insourced, we would have to pay people at least a real living wage, whereas the private sector pays them the minimum wage. So if we're requiring the private sector to pay them up to the living wage, I think all of a sudden insourcing looks much more viable. Yeah, I guess in the sector, if you look at adult social care particularly, 
almost the entire cost is is labor isn't it absolutely yeah it's, it's the most important factor and it just goes to show how important labor is in those services and across the wider economy without labor these services wouldn't be running we wouldn't have social care services to look after our, our sick and vulnerable we wouldn't have the NHS being staffed the way if we wouldn't have any public services without the people who were there on the front line providing them. Excellent. Okay, so um, so Labour's national leadership, we talked a bit about Tory uh, national leadership, so obviously nationally the Labour Party seems to be um, having You've got your, you know, some parts of the strong socialist ideological position of the Corbyn era and the more centrist leadership style um, under Star under Starmer. What what bearing does that does the, does that sort of um, does that sort of situation have on on the local Labour Party and indeed on on your on your style and time as as the group leader? I think, of course, we're we're part of the Labour Party and we're part of the Labour movement. So what happens nationally? Um, we, we pay close attention to and we, we have our views about. Um, but what I think we are successful in, in being able to do locally is to kind of work collectively as a team around our, our commonly agreed manifesto priorities and our commonly agreed strategy. Um, so we, we don't have, I wouldn't say, um, much kind of tension or division within the local party. Most of us, if not all of us, are kind of signed up to what we need to do in order to, to represent the people that rely on us in our communities and ensure that we've got a strong Labour representation on the council. Okay, it was, it was quite interesting because the this time, obviously, the, the change in leadership from George to yourself. Uh, so you were deputy under, under George Fielding um, and um, now with you as leader, you've got um, Charlotte Gerrada as, as deputy. But that change was obviously a completely marked difference to the time before where the, uh, not, uh, not, I'm not talking about when, when Stephen left the council group and George took over, but you know, in times gone by, what was it, 2014? There was quite a lot of drama, whereas this is almost actually slipped under the radar to the point that actually, you know, this is why we also, we also thought it was interesting to get you on and actually hear what your, what your vision for the, for the party and the, and the city was, was actually, isn't, aren't kind of no drama handovers a better thing for everyone concerned really yeah absolutely and i think within our labor group as it stands now we've got a really talented and experienced bunch um amongst which we're able to share out a whole host of different different responsibilities and roles um and clearly leader and deputy leader are, are kind of two of those roles um but i wouldn't necessarily say they're the most important they're just hold particular responsibilities and functions with them but across the whole team we've got a really good bunch um, and I'm yeah really proud to have been selected to, to play that role of leader but we are very much uh, we very much take a collective approach towards the way we organize and we campaign and everyone's got a really important part to play. So is there is there anything you'd say to anybody that was particularly of the ideological bent of the, of, you know, under the, you know, or, or particularly joined under the Corbyn years, that perhaps kind of feel Starmer's um, direction for the party nationally isn't kind of the direction they would want to go to. Is there, is there something you you you'd say to them to keep them in the to keep them in the the as it were the Labour family? What would you what would you say? 
Yeah, I mean, I've personally got some kind of sympathy with that perspective, having joined um, as a result of Corbyn's leadership myself and, and always been a supporter of the new direction that the party was taken. But I think for me, what I've learned, particularly since being a member, is more about the, the culture and the history of the Labour Party and its relationship towards the Labour movement. The Labour Party has always been a broad church, even during, I mean, to give an example, the kind of high point of Labour government after the Second World War, you had real left-wingers such as Nye Bevan, um, kind of part of the cabinet amongst people who might be more centrist or kind of um, soft left. And they all worked together around a national programme of transforming the country, um, kind of forming the NHS and providing public services. So I think for me, it's about looking at the bigger picture. We're not always going to agree. And it would be pretty boring if, if we did always agree, to be honest. I think a, a bit of healthy debate um, is good. But I do think we need to kind of foster that sense um, within the party and within the movement of being able to disagree with people in a way that's kind of respectful and constructive um, and not sowing seeds of division. Yeah, that's very interesting, Cal, because I, I know when, you know, obviously when, when Starmer took over, you, you know, I double about on, on social media and I, I saw a lot of what I would say, you know, very strong left-leaning groups where, you know, Labour Party members were taking the, well, I, I'm tearing up my membership card. I won't ever support, um, you know, I won't ever support Starmer. Uh, and I had that conversation that said, well, doesn't that mean that the Conservatives are going to win then? And and there seemed to be a very vocal minority for whom it was almost a case of, well, if we can't have the Corbyn brand of Labour and Socialism, then almost we're going to let the Conservatives win. Do you, do you think that 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 sentiment is starting to die down now, or, or do you think there's still that's still a, there's still that element out there? Yeah, and I, th I think you're right. That was some people's reaction, and nationally as well as locally, we've seen mm. members, um, quite often members who were very committed to the party and committed to the cause, the kind of really important people that would go out there and do the hard work on the doorstep, um, as well as the hard work behind the scenes. We've seen, a, unfortunately, a significant number of people leave um, as a result in the, the change in winds nationally. And I, I can understand and kind of partially sympathise with people who may want to do that. I think what I would, again, kind of reiterate is that Labour is a broad church and under the political system that we have, first past the post, there is one show in town when it's um, in terms of challenging the Tory government and trying to ensure that we have a, a left to centre government nationally and locally. And, and that's the Labour Party. So I would certainly encourage people not to leave. Um, I think things do change and it's important that people continue to, to make their arguments as, well, as long as they do so in a way that's respectful um, and accepts that people might not always agree with them. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting to me now looking at the Conservative Party because you have, um, you have similar divisions in that you have many members of the Conservative Party now who are desperately unhappy with their leader and with no um, with no mechanism to make that change. Absolutely, yeah, and look at what it's doing to the Tories nationally and locally. Division is not the way to go. It's not helpful. So moving on to our next question, um, 
and again this one potentially could be uh could be contentious and i hope owen's listening um with, with strikes on the railways and you know with with a number of of votes that are starting to to queue up i think the postal workers teachers are we looking at a summer stroke autumn stroke winter of discontent i think we might well be and i think that is not um not unexpected and, and not unreasonable for that to happen if you look at what's happened to to labor and the employment market over many years we've seen profits continue to rise year on year while the people who provide those services and run those companies at the coalface have seen their wages stagnate if not reduce in real terms and there's a lot of people who are now really struggling to get by faced with massively skyrocketing bills and all the government and many employers can do is turn around and say to people sorry but you're going to have to accept a real terms pay cut but i think what the railway workers are showing is that actually workers don't need to accept those pay cuts they can join the trade union they can organize with people in their workplaces and where they do they hold a lot of power like i said earlier public services and private companies cannot run they cannot operate without the labor that they rely on so i think it's about time that working people start exercising a bit of that power fighting their corner um, and ensuring that they get the, the pay and the terms and conditions that they need to, to live decent lives so i guess looking at that you know uh, uh, and again i have made my views fairly clear the, the the railway and the rmt which i think we both acknowledge is a is both a strong but perhaps a more um old-fashioned union that they, they appear to be the sort of flag bearers in terms of of this charge it, it is there you know are, are the rail workers really the the you know are they the deserving cause because ultimately if if you know if they get a double digit pay rise then i think many people would have much more sympathy and we've already touched on it for nurses carers teachers you know if if the railway workers are worth 10 percent, then surely that's just going to be the start of of well if they want 10 i want 11. and good for them i hope that is what happens i think we need every worker in their workplace to be standing up for their rights and for me a key employment right is that no one should have their wages cut so if inflation is seven or nine percent anyone who is getting a pay increase of less than seven or nine percent is having their pay cut and like you say why why should people accept having their pay cut particularly those people who have been on the front line whether it's in the railways or public services or the private sector over the last couple of years keeping the economy going, keeping people safe and well through the course of the pandemic, why should they now have to pay the price by having their wages cut? So, I mean, I fully support the railway workers in their dispute. You probably can't see it. I think it's just a bit out of picture, but I'm proudly sporting my RMT badge that was gifted to me by one of the workers I met on the picket lines locally this week. And I, I think speaking to those workers, what was clear to me was that, yes, this was a dispute for them about pay. Why should they um, accept a pay cut? I don't think they should. Although I think ultimately they would accept probably a small pay cut as long as they get in a, a half decent pay rise that sees their wages almost keep up with inflation. Um, but they, they were also really passionate about the railway. They were passionate about providing good quality services. Um, a lot of the people we spoke to were guards, so people that apply um, 
people that play a really important function on the trains in terms of passenger safety um, and ensuring that people are looked after if they need it and ensuring that trains are safe and welcoming places for people to use, um, as well as other railway workers who play a really important function. So they were they were just as passionate about uh, safety and about the, the quality of the railway service um, as they were about pay. We could go deeper into this one, I think. We could. Um, There's probably I, a whole episode on that. I guess it's the yeah. it's the well, if we clapped them and recognised them during the pandemic, are they not? If they're that valuable, that it grinds to a halt without them, are they also not valuable enough to deserve decent conditions and 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 pay rises? Not that I'm trying to make the RMT's point for them, but that kind of seems to be the logical argument to me. But hmm. and there is money out there. It's not like the country is skint. In the railways, we have chief executives earning millions and kind of profits in the in the hundreds of millions. There is money there. It's just not being directed into the pockets of the people who provide those services on the front line. And I think that's just a, that's a, a strange place where we might find some consensus, Cal, is that for me, the privatisation of the railway system is farcical and, and I would support nationalising it because I think it is a it is something it's an infrastructure that should be being utilized and being maximized from a green perspective um, and look demand has fallen by a third so under the current model you know the the income is significantly down and that's why i struggle with this concept of of a, a double digit pay rise and no guarantee of redundancies because you know i look at it through the lens of well if the demand is down by a third how can you how can the employer guarantee that there will be no compulsory redundancies and ultimately you know to to fund a a double digit pay rise i, I haven't seen the numbers to know whether the the profits that are paid to shareholders could fund that or whether that would be the government having to write another very large check to subsidize the running of the railways and the government did write a very large cheque during the pandemic to subsidise the running of the railways, but that money wasn't passed through the system, as I said, to the people on the front line. Yeah, it, it was it was used to prop the it, to prop the whole system up, where effectively nobody was using the railways, um, and with demand now down by a third, that's that's the piece where the detailed numbers say, well, okay, you know, if you're still pulling profits and bonuses. Well, you shouldn't be. Um, but if the profits and bonuses don't cover it, then ultimately it falls back to government to um, to fill the gap, does it not? It does. And I think the government has a very important role to play in supporting public transport across the country. And I can't see any reason why the government isn't running the industry themselves, that they are almost at arm's length. The, the companies are almost like middlemen. We were speaking to the staff on strike locally this week. And they were talking about the way in which the, the Department of Transport micromanages the industry to the extent where at Fratt and Harbour Station, if they want to take on one new member of staff, they have to get it signed off by the Department of Transport. Now, that sounds to me almost like a nationalised industry in all but name. So mm. we may as well go the full hog and ensure that it is being run nationally in a coherent and an efficient way that doesn't see profits being skimmed off by private companies. We agree. There we go. Right. An, agree an agreement for nationalisation of the railways. Who'd have thought? Right. 
Okay, so our um our next uh, question. So, um, so with the um with the um with the while the government put the results in um, in Tiverton and Hollinton and in Wakefield down to normal kind of midterm results, the usual usual sort of thing of well, it's it's midterm in the Parliament. We're bound to do badly at by elections. That's what normally happens, and those seat we regain those seats in a in a general election, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but what lessons do you feel there are for the opposition parties, um, considering obviously the returning of, of Wakefield back uh, back into Labour hands um, um, in the uh, in the by-election on Thursday, and the Lib Dems taking Tiverton and Honiton out of the out of Tory hands um, on Thursday as well? What lessons are there for the opposition parties who want to end the party for Johnson? Yeah, good question. I mean, it does raise. The obvious question that that has been asked of both parties around um, kind of electoral alliances and whether um, tactical mm. voting played a role, um, and, and kind of personally, I think that's something that does need to be looked at. But I mean, there are also massive difficulties with it. Clearly, it has the benefits of potentially increasing the number of non-Tory MPs at the next general election, which may hasten their decline and ensure that we've got a, a, a left or at least a kind of centre-left government um, following that election. However, I think there are kind of practical issues which may make it difficult. I know that, personally speaking, as a, a committed Labour Party member in a kind of local party, I think if we were suddenly told you need to stand back um, and let another party take the lead in your constituency, I think we would probably struggle to accept that. Um, if it is going to work, I think it needs to be something, especially from the Labour Party perspective, the other parties will probably feel the same. I think it was, needs to be something that is locally led and not just kind of declared by the National Party because otherwise it's not going to work. However, it's I personally think probably something that it is worth looking at um, and looking at the practicalities of how and why it could work. Do you think that's a, you mentioned it earlier, do you think that's a bit of a byproduct of first past the post? Would we be better off if we did, if we had some form of PR? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm in favour of PR. Um, our local Labour Party is in, in favour of PR and we sent a, a motion to the last Labour Party conference actually calling for the party to adopt PR as its policy. Um, a motion which actually only narrowly fell, interestingly. Um, and yeah, I do think it will probably resolve a lot of those issues um, should PR be adopted. But we are where we are with the electoral system as it stands at the moment. Yeah, you've got to win under the current system, right, to change it. Absolutely. And is that, is that not always the dilemma of PR? Is that the Conservatives will never, we will never go for PR. Because ultimately, if you look at vote share and, and, and you know, what what you will almost certainly end up with under PR is a is a left centre left alliance. So the Conservatives are never going to vote for it. So the real kingmakers for PR are the Labour Party, um, and the only way that they ever change it is when they get a majority. But is that dilemma not the fact that having won under the previous system, it, it, it's almost certain that should they then vote through PR, they are almost they're, they're never going to stand in government alone they're always going to be in some kind of coalition which is why the Labour Party have always or seem to have, have, have shied away from the PR option. Yeah absolutely I think, I think it's easy to be attracted to PR 
when you're in opposition and it's going to potentially be to your benefit but like you say when, when you gain power um for, for a party that's got a majority under a first part pass the post system if they were to implement pr that would almost definitely mean hand in a way the power that they have and the influence that they have so whether we're actually going to find ourselves in a situation where a national party is willing to do that in government we shall see mm. So, w will that motion be being raised again at this year's Labour Party conference? I don't think it can. I think we've got a rule that something can't be brought back the next year. I think it has to miss a year, but it's it's certainly still on the agenda. I mean, just to go into the kind of nitty gritty of how Labour Party conference works very quickly is the, the votes are split um, between 50% local parties and 50% affiliates, so primarily trade unions. Um, when the motion was brought to last conference, the local parties were overwhelmingly in favour, but it was the affiliate section that swung it against. Um, and mm. since that's happened, a, a couple of the large trade unions have had, through their conferences, proportional representation motions passed. So it may be that their their positions on that have changed and, and should it come up again, we might get a different result. Interesting. Thank you for that insight. So coming back to this thought on progressive alliances, you know, the, it was interesting when we looked at, um, I looked to listen to the politics show this morning and Ed Davey and um, David Lammy both said, absolutely not. There was no agreement. There was no, no kind of, you know, even informal arrangement. It just so happened that in Tiverton, Labour lost their deposit and in Wakefield, the Lib Dems lost their deposit. I guess in terms of, progressive alliance there is an element where we could say that that Portsmouth with the with the Labour group um, looking to support the Lib Dems back into administration rather than the Conservatives um, do, do you see any potential for a progressive alliance in Portsmouth formally or is it a case that in the majority of seats that you're contesting um, as a Labour group it is often the the Lib Dems and the Labour Party who are the top two. Yeah, I, I can't I can't personally see it as a likely scenario anytime soon. Um, and I guess you have to also ask kind of how you're defining progressive. I know that um, I mean within the Lib Dems again, the Lib Dems is a broad church um, as a party yeah. and as a movement. It has people of all different ideological and kind of political perspectives in the local party we have people who were who were Tories for many years and we have people who self-described themselves as, as socialists in the local Lib Dems um so clearly for us in the Labour Party it would be easier for us to work with some of those people than others um yep but yeah I can't see it happening anytime soon and under the current rules particularly from the Labour Party's perspective I think also from the Lib Dems when we're not allowed to enter into any kind of electoral packs prior to the election that might see us stand down um obviously like you say there's there's a question there about how resources are targeted and that may happen on kind of an informal basis um particularly nationally but yeah i, I don't think locally it's on it's on the agenda as you'd be at makes sense so oh sorry simon did you want to come in um, well, no, I didn't know whether we were moving on to question nine or... Yeah, that's where I was headed. No, yeah. I was taking a breath. Yeah, no. So, um, if there's one thing you could change about the way that PCC runs, um, what would it be? 
Well, I think my tongue-in-cheek answer would be to remove the Lib Dems from power and put in a Labour cabinet. <laughs> more, oh, more serious. Labour running it. That, that, I mean, that, yeah, OK, that's an obvious answer. Yeah, well done. <laughs> we didn't see that coming. <laughs> more, more seriously, I mean, something that I have almost been fighting a kind of one-man campaign on to some extent for a little while is is the way in which we have used our kind of electoral cycle locally for council elections. So we have council elections three out of every four years with a third of councillors up each time. Um, and that, that is the choice of the, of the local authority to do that. There are other local authorities who have all out elections every four years. Yep. Personally, I mean, this is something actually that is Ports of Labour policy we've put into kind of, I think, all of our budget amendments in, in previous years around moving to this. And I think the point we've usually made has been around cost. It would be more cost efficient, I think, to the tune of something like 150 grand a year to have all out elections rather than do it three out of every four years. Um, but I think there's another, uh, actually a much stronger argument around good governance and, and long term planning. I think the current system fosters massively a sense of, of short termism. So, I mean, the elections this year, the Lib Dems have, have been put back into power and the way in which works in previous years, it will no doubt work again this year, is they'll spend a few months um, implementing their policy, trying to make changes that, that were in their manifesto, etc. Although they didn't actually publish a manifesto, but stuff they feel passionately about. Um, and then the, the kind of the next six to nine months will be fighting next year's election. Um, and, mm. and for me, that's a really big block on the kind of longer term strategic thinking and policy we need as a city. I mean, to give an example, the climate crisis is going to require massive changes to the way we live and massive changes to the way that the council runs the city. But I think people are just too scared to have those conversations and start looking at that really kind of transformative policy at the moment, because... I think what you're going to need is you're going to need a period of time for those policies to settle in and people see the benefits and adapt the way they live and change their behavior. You can probably do, you can start to do that over a four year term because you can do kind of the, the kind of really big policy in the first couple of years and allow people time to, to get to grips with it. If you've always got an election more or less within 12 months, I think the people in power are just scared to do anything that might upset a particular section of voters yeah. and then get punished a few months down the line yeah and that it is something which again when you when you look at it that that element of and i think you touched on it in one of your earlier answers is that in terms of local party politics that the number of activists the the, the boots on the ground are are not the numbers aren't enormous so the fact that they're on a perpetual hamster wheel of of campaigning for next year's election probably is quite distracting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also, I mean, clearly it has an impact in terms of council policy um, and the way that that develops. But I mean, from our perspective in the Labour Party, I think it also detracts from some of the other work that we'd like to do. Um, again, if you're out electioneering, you're not potentially doing other stuff and whether that's kind of um, working with members within the party to develop policy, whether it's about reaching out really deeply into communities and kind of campaigning on the issues that matter most to people um, and kind of trying to identify community leaders and bring them through and provide the support to, to local groups that need it. Of course, we, we do do that stuff and, and we try really hard, but when you've always got 
one eye on the next election, I think at times it can become a distraction from the the other really important work that we, we all need to be engaged in. Superb. Okay. So we're whizzing through these. We're doing we're doing well. Last last one, uh Cal. So what is it that excites you most about um leading Portsmouth Labour going forward? Well I think it's clear we're on a really good trajectory. When I joined the party in twenty fifteen we had two councillors and in every local election since we've increased the size of our Labour group. Um, so if we, if we continue to do that, we are on a trajectory to run the council. And, and that is clearly our ambition, because we want to see our policies and our principles um, put into action. But I think we can only really do that by continuing to develop the Labour group and the local party. And I think probably what excites me most about that is the team that we have in place now is, is a really strong one. We've got really skilled and experienced people as part of the Labour group from a whole range of different backgrounds and perspectives, and we work really well as a team. Um, but also within the wider party, we've got a, a significant number of people who have put themselves forward for local election, whether it be this year or in previous years, and not quite made, um, not quite been able to get elected. We also have lots of people who are involved in our, in our local party, in our branches, who have got a lot to contribute and, and do really important work. So I think we are in a really strong position in terms of, of building that team that is needed in order for us to continue to make gains and in order for us to continue to, to campaign in our communities on the issues that are most important to our residents. So do you believe, and, and again, forgive the, the tone of the question, do you, do you think there is a, a route map for Labour to that magic 22 number? in terms of councillors, because I, I, I absolutely agree with you that it's a positive trajectory from two to nine. But with the north of the city now being a mix of blue and purple, um, purple? with that little island of, of Shah's red dot in Cosham, do, do you believe that there is a, a roadmap to, to, to a Labour majority? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, a majority is a, is a rare thing in Portsmouth. And we all know you, you don't necessarily need a majority to be in a position where you lead the council. I think it's been no overall control, well, for, for a long, long period of time. So what you need to get into a position is where you're the largest party. Um, and I think, yeah, we, we are on a trajectory to do that. If we replicate this year's results in terms of the awards we won next year and the year after, we only need one additional seat on top of that to be the largest party. So that there's a clear plan there, there's a clear strategy to do that. Um, and I think with the team that we've got, if we all continue to work together and work hard, then we will do that. If you had a similar results this year, next year, um, and the Conservatives had a same uh, a same result, that'd make you the wouldn't that make you the, the second largest party? That would actually make you the, the party of opposition in the in the council, which would be also for an interesting changing the situation wouldn't it absolutely yeah that would that would change the dynamic and like i say that is that is the kind of path that we're on and we are committed and confident about making that happen and would that give an interesting dilemma because at the moment the the way the system works the cabinet system is that and we touched on it earlier is that you have to elect a winner who gets all of the goodies um you know do, do you see their you know, it, it always strikes me that that in return for the 
in return for your support. You seem to get very little back in return from the Lib Dem administration. If you were the party of opposition, does that lead to a different dynamic? Well, I think we are the party of opposition as it stands. We may only have the, the third largest group, but if you look at the policies that are being implemented by the administration or the, the policies that are kind of being looked at, whether it's living wage, um, outsourcing, the climate crisis, these are all issues that the Labour Party has been leading on and has pushed to the top of the agenda. So I think gaining power and gaining control over the cabinet is important. But I think that there's a lot of important work we can do from opposition and we have been doing over the, the past couple of years to, to push our priorities and have them heard by the powers that be. So watch this space. Yeah, no. And, and Cal, thank you for your time today. It's been uh, it's been great to get your insight and um, and uh, obviously exciting times for yourself. And uh, and uh, like you say, there's there's a plan there. Um, we know that uh, a, a week can be a long time in politics. So over the next couple of years, um, who knows which way the uh, the the tide will run. But um, is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I think we've covered covered a fair bit over the last 57 minutes, haven't we? So I think I've got all the points across that I wanted to make. I mean, just, I guess, to conclude, I think we did have a really good result in, in this year's election. And I think we are in a really good place. We've, we've got a path and we've got a strategy to continue to make gains over the coming years. Hopefully, at some point, be in a position to take control of the council. Um, but whether or not that happens, we will continue to push our policies um, and represent the residents that have elected us. So thank you both for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure as always. And I look forward to the next time. Thank you. That'll be fabulous. You've been listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I've been Ian Tiny Morris. And our guest has been... Cal Corcoran. And I've been Simon Sandsbury. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows and get to know when we're live. We normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening. Then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa, play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics Podcast from Amazon Music. Alexa, the latest episode. stop. See? It's easy. <laughs>